O Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. That as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Today's passage is from the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And, um, sir, I'm just looking around to see if I'm at the wrong place in, uh, in the service. Um, no, I think we're on track. Sorry. <laughs> um, so in, the, in Luke's gospel, he tells of a, a long and important sermon that Jesus preached. And as the call to worship reminded us, uh, this was particularly to his disciples, but a whole multitude came to hear. And it says they came uh, because they knew that he, he healed diseases and he cast evil spirits out of all who had them. And they, they wanted to know his words. So Jesus looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. This passage may have sounded both uh, quite familiar and a little unfamiliar to some of you. The Beatitudes exist also in the Gospel of Matthew. These are the two of the four Gospels that include the Beatitudes, the blessings. The Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, though, is quite similar in some ways to what we have reported by Luke. And there are striking contrasts between the two. For one thing, uh, Luke, what we've just read, includes four blessings and four woe to you. The Sermon on the Mount's Beatitudes have nine blessings and no woes. Not surprising that that is the one that is more familiar. Also more familiar because the spiritual message of the Matthew Beatitudes is clear. 
Matthews say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Matthew's Beatitudes say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This just says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. So is this the same sermon from two different perspectives? Are these two different sermons at two different times? Nobody knows. Scholars have talked about this for millennia, literally. Whatever, it's clear that there are different emphases in these two renderings of the Beatitudes. And I think whenever this happens in the Bible, and certainly not the only place where you get slightly different versions of events or teachings, wherever that happens, I think the Holy Spirit is telling us there's this and there's that. You need to hear both. And the version of the Beatitudes here is saying, even if you are actually poor, not only poor in spirit, but if you are, if you are poor or hungry or other people are against you and it doesn't get better, you can still rejoice because God is still with you and God can bring blessing out of whatever. And because this whole earthly life is just a blip. And what God has for us in the great span of time is cause for more rejoicing than we can possibly imagine. But these words of Jesus must have stunned many of the people who had come to hear him because he was known as one who made things better. He healed diseases, cast out evil spirits, what we would probably consider mental illness or addictions. He went to bat for them against those who were their oppressors and fed the hungry. Didn't say, oh, it's a good thing to be hungry. He fed the hungry. But now he was telling them that deliverance might not be immediate but it would come. He was giving the perspective of eternity. And then, as for those who were doing just fine, thank you, no divine help needed, Jesus says, woe to you. Well, when we're successful, it's easy to think we have everything we need. We don't reach out for the blessings of God's kingdom because we have our own kingdom. Woe to the rich, Jesus says, for you have already received your reward. That's what you're focusing on, what's here and now. When we have what we really want, it's hard not to be complacent and arrogant. It's hard to notice the needs of other people. Woe to you, Jesus says, to you who hoard earthly blessings, for you will be brought down, maybe sooner, maybe later. Several 
commentators have mentioned that these, this, cat, this listing of blessings and woes are just statement of fact, that life is like this, that there aren't commands here. Jesus isn't saying, go out and be poor, and he's not saying, don't be rich, just a declaration. Sometimes you're up in the ways of the world, sometimes you're down. What one commentator calls the Ferris wheel of life. So how do we live? Sometimes up, sometimes down. Well, when we're up on the Ferris wheel, looking out over the heads of other people, looking out over all those lights of the fairgrounds, we need not to assume that this will always be our natural place. And not to assume that being up there that we're up there because this is what is due to me. The teaching of the Bible, of course, is that God loves, dearly loves, every one of us. Every one of us. But that more is required of those who have a lot of the good things of this life. Wealth, comfort, power, reputation, now, I have never been rich, and I'm never going to be rich. I see ads for $1,200 handbags, and I wonder, who are these people? <laughs> and how do they live with themselves? And in every city I've ever been in, there are neighborhoods, plural, of mansions, and I wonder, what do these people do? How can there be all these different ways to be what looks to me like super rich? So the rich, that's somebody else. But all of us modern Americans who live above the poverty line are richer than almost anybody who's ever lived. We are living in more comfort than kings and queens did for most of the history of kings and queens. Those old time castles were drafty, cold, and stinky. <laughs> you would not want to spend, I would not want to spend a night's lodging in an old castle. We are amazingly rich compared to most of the people who've ever lived and many of the people living now in other, in other places. Same for power. Never had much power. And I think most of us have experienced difficulties from somebody else's use of power. And it's comforting to know that God will judge that. So power also, you know, I think, yeah, that's those other people. But you and I also have power. We have power simply because we are Americans, 
because we're white, because we're educated. We have power that we often don't use well simply because we're not even aware of how we're exerting our power. So for us, not just for those really rich and really powerful, but for us too, Jesus is calling us to use our riches and our power for those who have left, have less. And how do we live according to the wisdom of Jesus when we're at the bottom of the Ferris wheel, when we are having money troubles or grieving or when we are not healed from some illness? How do we live when we're at the low swing? Think of a friend whose story um, always moves me. Some years ago, about 20 years ago, this man who was very active in uh, his church, uh, good businessman, good family man, had a number of problems at once. He developed cancer, and uh, during the, the time that he was in treatment for cancer, his wife also became, uh, became ill. Um, one of his children was in trouble, a lot of difficulty. And as he told me, all of these things were bearable until something else happened. He had fallings out with people in the church that had been so important a part of his life. And it's funny about difficulties within a church. I think, in fact, that when we have real disagreements, disappointments in a congregation, that it's similar to when real trouble develops in a marriage. Because, as in a marriage, this is a group of people that you've come to, to be with because of shared value, of things that are deeply important to you. In a church, for people very involved in a church, as in a marriage, you give a lot of yourself. And as in a marriage, this is particularly the place of refuge, the place where you are understood, you are appreciated for what you really are. And when things go wrong in a marriage or in a congregation, there's a sense of a deeper disappointment and even betrayal than I think in almost any other community that we're in. So without going into the details of that, he felt abandoned by the people in his church. And in the midst of all he was going through then, he felt, where is God? He felt that God also his, had abandoned him. And he said during that very terrible time when he would go out walking, his main exercise, that during the winter he would go walking and in one glove he had written out a Bible verse from 2 Corinthians. 
In our hearts, Paul wrote to that church, in our hearts we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That was in his one glove. In the other glove, he carried written out the passage from James, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith produces endurance. It took him almost two years to heal spiritually. And during that time, he also put the rest of his life back together. His cancer was and is in remission. His wife recovered from her other problem. And his son managed to find his way out of the bad things he had gotten into. He put together, my friend put together his life and then, over the next uh, 15 years, he worked as a consultant to congregations that had experienced wounds. This is how I got to know him. And I know that he is somebody who has been able to bring tremendous healing to five different congregations in those 15 years because he himself knew what it was like to feel totally undone and to learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He told me of a new story that had worked for him as a sustaining metaphor during his time of trial, and I'll close with this. Back in 1994, there was a large forest fire in South Canyon, Colorado. And uh, many firefighters were sent to the scene. Uh, the Bureau of Land Management was working on this day and night. And uh, at the time that they had begun to think they were starting to get that fire under control, a tremendous wind came along and sent the fire back in the area that it had come. And in this sudden change of direction, firefighters were exposed. It led to the greatest loss of life among firefighters that this country has ever experienced. Twelve lost their lives, but 35 firefighters managed to survive by taking advantage of what firefighters call the good black. The good black is what has been charred already by burning. Now what the fire was going back toward, they were still standing trees that were fuel for the fire. But everything low had been charred, burnt away. And the firefighters who survived 
lay down in the charred area, put their silver protective blankets over them, and the fire roared over them, but did not kill them. So my friend who had the difficulties 20 years ago said that story became to him an image of how to survive, that he needed to lie down in the good black of his own life, what had already been charred, burned away. Because he learned that when you are scorched by the fires of life and all hope is gone, that can be your good black, the place where you discover that your life is sustained not by your own efforts, not by your own cleverness, not by your own networks, but by the hand of God alone. Blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. Let us now join in singing hymn number 175, Seek Ye First. <laughs> 